Well, good morning, Merry Christmas, and uh, grab your Bibles, all right? We've gathered in the name of the Lord, and we're going to spend a few moments uh, reflecting upon His Word today. Got a question for you to start. How many uh, last-minute shoppers do we have out here, right? Any last-minute, uh, those of you that go out? I, my father-in-law was, like, classic with this. Uh, he would go out on Christmas Eve day, even sometime in the afternoon, just a few hours before the stores closed, and he would go shopping. And I went with him a few times, and it was incredible. Uh, he would find the right gifts in, like, the shortest amount of time I've ever seen, and he would, I would stress me out. I'd be like, dude, like, it's Christmas Eve day, and you're like, you don't have your gifts yet? And so, anyway, he'd bring them home, he'd wrap them, and they would be ready, and uh, it w- he was quite the last-minute uh, shopper. So, uh, which brings us to the question, like, why do we give gifts at Christmas? Uh, traditionally, historically, in, in the Christian tradition that goes back to the gifts of the Magi or the wise men when they came and they brought their gold and frankincense and myrrh to Jesus, right? Those gifts that were meant for a king. Uh, we follow that example as, as a way of just expressing ourselves at Christmas uh, time. And the whole gift thing, you know, it can be challenging, can't it? I mean, who, do you, who should you buy a gift for? You wrestle with that one? Like, and how much should you spend, right? Uh, those type of things. So families have different ways of doing that to exchange names or whatever, you know. It's like you all are in the thick of that, and, and do you know exactly what I'm talking about. And when it comes down to it, though, I think for each of us at Christmas, we want our gifts to communicate care and love and value, don't we? I mean, it's why we put so much effort into it. Like, you want to give something that they're going to appreciate, but you also want to give something that, that demonstrates to them your love for them, their, your care for them, your, the value that they have in your life. And I believe this is true of God as well, in an even greater way, right? Because God's love is a perfect love. And at Christmas, we celebrate his ultimate gift, All right? So if you got your Bibles out or your electronic device, turn to John chapter 3, and uh, there's a really uh, familiar verse probably to most of us, and today's a great day for us just to slow down a bit, pause, and reflect on it again. Maybe this is a verse for some of you, or if you're tuning in online or whether you're in the room, like you've heard it in the past, but you've never really slowed down enough to seriously contemplate what it says, and that's what we're going to do today. John chapter 3 In verse 16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave. There it is, right? That he gave. This is God's gift. He's giving. It's just like you're giving things to people this year. Uh, God gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's an incredible verse. And maybe you're here today or you're tuning in a line again and, and you're not convinced that there even is a God. Maybe you're here because you came to town and you're visiting family. You know, you came because mom asked you to or grandma asked you to or whatever it might be. Uh, just a thing you do at Christmas. But you're not even really convinced that there is a God or at least that you can know God or that God knows you or that he loves you, right? Those are great questions, right? Does God know me? Can God know me? Can I know him? Those are great questions, and often our understanding of God begins with questions, right? What we believe to be true about God begins with questions. As you think back through your life, that may be the pattern that you see, man. Something happened, and I had this question about God, and as I, you know, examined that and explored that and talked with people about that, like, man, it helped build my understanding of who God is. And when we have questions about God, we have to decide 
where we're going to find answers. I uh, just had a family gathering yesterday. I had a great conversation with uh, one of my nephews about this very thing. He, he right out of the gate, I walked into the room, and, and you got to know my nephew, he's a teenager, and, and uh, he's, he's a pretty bright kid, and, and he just is like, he's got lots of questions. So as soon as I walked in the room yesterday, hey, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I am, <laughs> right? And, and he just launched into this, these questions, and, and I said to him, I said, no, listen, I said, here's one of the things I believe is that, you know, in answering these questions, because he was talking about, well, you know, this and that, and so-and-so says this. I'm, I said, dude, listen, here's what you have to do first. You have to determine where you're going to find your answers. Because if you just take whatever's given to you, you know, in, in, in a daily basis, like, man, you're going to live your life confused and, and bewildered about the things that you're asking about because there's, there's no way. The, the, all of those voices are not going to agree. I said, for me, I go to the Bible. And we talked a little about why I believe the Bible is, is our ultimate authority and why I go here to find the answers, to make sense of those very things, right? And here at Crossroads, we're convinced that the Bible is our ultimate source of truth regarding God and regarding us and regarding this crazy world in which we live. It was written by God through human authors. And we are to study it well. We are to study it often because God's Holy Spirit uses it. That's why it's called the sword of the spirit. And when reflecting on the armor of God, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. So the spirit uses it to give us knowledge that changes the way that we think and the way that we live. And so this one verse that we read declares three really incredible truths that I want to talk about with you today. And the first truth just kind of jumps off the page at you. It's not a surprise to you. God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world. Now, just pause with me for a moment and think about the name God or the concept of God, if you will, if that's what you, how you want to think about it, the, the person of God. Just pause for a moment and think about it. Think about him. Right? And, and, and sometimes we're afraid to do that. Sometimes we don't like to even think about God because he is overwhelming to us. Right, to, to try and wrap our minds around him as, as we think about God and kind of his grandeur and how awesome he is. Like, it's like, man, my brain just hurts even trying to do this. So sometimes we just avoid it because we think God is overwhelming to us. Sometimes we don't want to think about God because we realize, well, if God does exist, then maybe I, I do have to give an answer to him for my life, and, and I don't want to think about that accountability to him. Right? And so we just... Like, choose not to think about God. But the Bible leads us, obviously, to, to think about God very deeply. And, and here in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He so loved. Doesn't, say, doesn't just say God loved the world. It says God so loved the world. There's a special emphasis there in the, in the, in the Greek in which it's written. And, and it's this emphasis of the depth of God's love. God so loved the world. Now, why is it written in past tense? God so loved. I mean, is that something that like God used to love the world? No, John is writing in a past tense because he's writing about this specific moment in which God sent his son. A historical event, we believe it to be, that we celebrate here at Christmas time, right? We, this, the, throughout the Bible, we have demonstrated to us the love of God, and there's no reason to believe his love has changed or that it will change. So God so loved the world, meaning every person of every place and any time in history, God so loved 
the world. You, right? God so loved you that he, he, he created us to know us. He created us to love us. If we go back to the account of Genesis 1 and 2 in the very beginning of things, which I think is absolutely critical in, in building a, an understanding of who God is, we've got to go back to the start. God created male and female, right? In his image, you and me, created in the image of God. Have you ever thought about that before? Maybe some of you have never thought about the fact you're created in the image of God. How amazing is that, friend, right? And what does that mean, created in the image of God? And it means that God has created us, one, as a small piece of that, is he's created us as relational beings, right? He's created us with the ability to relate and to love. And just as he loves us, he's created us to love one another and to love him. That's unique among God's creation. God so loved the world because he desired to know us and to love us. That's why he made us. But there's something God needed to do, right? Because of his love, the second truth that jumps out of this one verse is that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What an amazing gift. Now, why did he have to do that? Well, let's go to verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but God sent his son in order that the world through him might be saved. God didn't send his son to condemn. Thankful for that, right? That's good. But he sent him in order that the world might be saved through him. That sounds like a pretty big deal. Kind of like superhero stuff, doesn't it? I mean, save the world, right? I mean, yeah, let, let, like, let's just think about that for a little bit. It's worth knowing about. It's worth talking about today. And I think one of the questions that stems from that, if he came to save the world, we have to ask the question, well, save from what? What, what do you and I need to be saved from? Let's go to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's that word again. It was mentioned in verse 17. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Say it with me. Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So why did Jesus need to be sent? Right? Why did the Father send the Son? To save us? To save us from what? To save us from condemnation. To, to realize our sin condemns us. What's our sin? It's our disobedience of God. And that is true of every person since Adam and Eve when sin entered the world. And the Bible speaks of this understanding of, of Adam, the first Adam, all right, in the Garden of Eden as kind of our representation of humanity. And also speaks of, of Jesus in the sense of the second Adam, the one who came to bring uh, salvation and redemption and justification. So let's read from Romans chapter 5 for a moment about this. It says, and the free gift, there it is, this free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. That's Adam's sin, right? For the judgment following one trespass brought, here it is again, condemnation. But the free gift flowing from many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive, listen, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So he said, man, sin came into the world through Adam. When, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, eat of the fruit, that brought a, a curse upon the world and, and brought death. Jesus, or God was very clear with them, right? You eat of this fruit and you will surely die. God was clear with them what the consequence would be if they ate of this fruit. And praise be to God, he's always clear with us in those kind of things. And so uh, death came, condemnation came because of the presence of sin. And all of us born into this world as sinners with a sin nature from that point forward. But here's the great news, right? Romans 5 declared it through the abundance of grace and the free gift, right? This Through the one man, Jesus Christ, we can have salvation. We can have justification. That What that is just a, a big word that means we, we now in our, our, our presence before God, right? Our, our um, representation before God has now been brought into right standing. We've been justified. Through Jesus Christ. Not because we become good enough or somehow to please God, right, who is the judge, but, but because of Jesus, right, we have been justified in Him and because of Him and through Him. The only way we can be made right with God. So, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he goes on to say a little later in chapter 8, verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the wonderful truth of Jesus. And so these ideas, this concept of condemned and, and not condemned and no condemnation, that's a really big deal. It speaks to us of that eternal separation from God because of our sin. That condemnation is what separates us from God. We have a broken relationship with God. Even though he's created us to know him and to be uh, known by him, our sin separates us from him, and, and the Bible speaks of this reality of, of eternity without Christ and, and a place called hell and, and that eternal separation and what that is exactly going to be like. We have glimpses of it in the scriptures, but we don't know, but it's going to be something where, man, it is not going to be pleasant, and, and we have this eternity uh, with God through Christ Jesus as well. So whoever believes in him... Uh, this holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God demands that kind of, of uh, response to our sin. And so the message of the Bible clearly teaches that God would send a Savior, a Messiah, his Son. And so as I was contemplating this, I thought, man, how do we know Jesus is the one? Have you ever grappled with that question? Like God, God said, right? Okay, so we're waiting for this promised one that God said, how do we know Jesus is the one? Many have claimed to be the one, right? You've heard some of those stories. Many have claimed to be the Messiah. Just listened to a podcast this week in which some uh, Hasidic Jews believe this guy with the last name Schneerson, uh, who died in 1994, that, that he was the Messiah. They're convinced of that. How do we know Jesus is the one? It's a great question, isn't it? Our approach this Christmas has been to study some of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, predictive prophecies, things that were told even centuries before. And we understand in Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection, there were nearly 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus alone, these amazing things that were foretold about him. And it's quite mind-boggling and astounding to think about the many 
things that were predicted of the Messiah centuries before he showed up. And these prophecies are like super bright neon lights, right, shining in the darkest night. Going, Here is the one. God did that for us. And uh, the fact that God acted so intentionally and so clearly to make sure that we could, without question, know who is his son, I think that is the very definition of love. Scripture defines God. God is love, right? He, he doesn't act in any other way than a loving manner because he is love. It's not an attribute that he contains. It's, it's what he is. God is love. And so this intentionality of being sure that through these uh, prophetic uh, statements and fulfillments, like that we, we have these bright signs going, this is the one. Like I think that is an incredible act of God's love. The fact that God would send his son, right? That's love. But the fact on top of that, that God would make it so evident and so clear for you and me to know who his son is, that's just love in abundance, right? He didn't have to do that. We, he could have left it up to the life of Jesus, you know, alone. And as we have in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like, man, look at this guy. Look what he did. Look what he taught. Like, I mean, that should have been enough. But no, God in his love and in his grace and his mercy says, listen to, like, listen to me. I, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to intentionally point so much through these prophetic fulfillments of who my son is so that you will know and that you will believe and that you will be saved through him. Fulfilled prophecy teaches, teaches you that God loves you. you know, one of the questions we've been asking this week is, what is of these prophecies that you know, we focus on? Like, what does fulfilled prophecy teach us about God? Friend, listen, I think one of the most incredible things that fulfilled prophecy teaches us is that God loves you. He's a God of love. And he's a God of kindness and of mercy and of grace. Not just that he would send his son, but that he would make it so evident of who his son is. So maybe, I just wonder, like in your you know, process of, of life and, and, and whatever has kind of formed and shaped your thinking and understanding about who God is, I just wonder, have you ever wrestled with that question, does God love me? Does God care about me? And what I want you to hear this morning is I think, man, as we think about these prophecies, I think one thing is abundantly clear. God loves you without question. Now, there's some uh, of these prophecies. Here's one we want to focus on today for just a few minutes here is that the prophecy is this, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now, it's, it's quite fun sometimes today to, to see how couples do their birth announcements, you know. Uh, you know, announcing that they're pregnant, that kind of thing. Some pretty, uh, pretty amazing uh, creativity going on today uh, that you see, right? Um, but I just tell you, uh, you know, parents, your child may be special, but it, there's no birth announcement like Jesus' birth announcement, right? I mean, did you have an angel visit you? Uh, I don't know, probably not, and more than one. Like, and so it's pretty amazing uh, to see how God did this, right? None can rival his birth announcement. We, we see part of it in Luke chapter 1 when the angel appeared to Mary. We've been camping out on Matthew's account. So go to Matthew chapter 1. 
verse 18, when we see this interaction of Joseph with an angel, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 1, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, right, before they had any sexual relationship, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we could put a parenthesis in here of like Luke chapter 1 has happened, right, is what Matthew is saying. Uh, This has happened. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly because he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. They didn't have any physical relationship until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So not only the prophecy fulfilled, right, but the nature of this prophecy is miraculous. The last few weeks, we've talked about prophecies, as I mentioned, in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, we read that, that Micah was a prophet God used to declare that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, God worked the circumstances through Caesar Augustus to cause a census to send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem just at the time Jesus was to be born, right? Great, right? Amazing, but not miraculous. Uh, We talked about Hosea, who said this, that, that, that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. And so again, God orchestrating circumstances... Uh, through Herod, and, and which, which uh, the angel uh, alerted Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt for protection, and, and then they came out of Egypt back into Israel. Great piece of the stories. We talked about it. Not miraculous. We talked last week about Jeremiah and the unfortunate, sad, weeping, and, and grief that would happen surrounding the birth of Jesus as, as uh, he commanded that the, the uh, boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, be killed. Right? That was a prophecy that that would happen. Right? The wickedness and evil of this world showed itself even in the birth of Christ. Incredible part of the story, but not miraculous. This prophecy is different. That a virgin would ever give birth is miraculous. It doesn't happen. Right? And it was predicted over 700 years before it happened. And this is how we know Jesus is the one. All of these things combined, right? Now, I suppose if we're technical about it, a virgin birth could happen today because of, you know, in vitro fertilization, all that kind of jazz if we want to get technical. But but not in the way that Jesus was conceived, right? This is totally unique. It is miraculous. The virgin birth is God creating life out of nothing through the power of his Holy Spirit. Just like Genesis, when God created the world and spoke it into existence by the power of his Holy Spirit. We see God's creative power in the birth of Christ. A miracle that a virgin would have a child. Now, let me just take a quick side note here to mention one thing. Some would teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin during her life, but... 
We see in Scripture in numerous places that Jesus had brothers and sisters, but they were born of of Mary and Joseph both. Jesus' birth was unique, conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculous. Where do we see this? In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is the prophecy that uh, Matthew was drawing from. We, We read this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is, a sign, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Miraculous. God wanted to give us a sign. Why? I think because God loves us so incredibly so that he wanted to make it incredibly obvious this is his son. Who was Isaiah? We mentioned the meaning of his name. Davis did in the reading, salvation of Yahweh. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel during the 8th century B.C. Assyria at that time was the major world power and a threat to Israel. And uh, Isaiah was, is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. In the context of his time, Israel is living in disobedience. God sending his messengers right, uh, as warning to call them back to repentance and obedience right, or else there would be a consequence And at this particular time of Isaiah 7, King Ahaz was trusting in Assyria as an ally more than he was trusting in God. And so God was through Isaiah saying to King Ahaz, like, turn to me, trust in me, not not in those who you think are your allies who are going to turn their backs on you, trust in me. And a sign to Ahaz in that time was that God that God was with Israel, right? A sign that God wanted to give to Israel was that a woman who was then a virgin would get married, would conceive and bear a son whose name would be called, you ready for this? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. There you go. Now, any of you parents looking for a name of a child, it's, I think that's pretty special right there. Right? He was referenced, referenced as Emmanuel or God with us in a sense that for them in that day, the fulfillment was, listen, Israel, Your God loves you and you're living in disobedience, but because he's patient with you and he loves you, he wants to show you that he is with you. And so it's believed that this was Isaiah's second wife, his first had died, and and the prophecy fulfilled in a sense where Isaiah married again and he lay with his wife and she conceived, right? A virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. And this name was to this this story, right? Using Isaiah's life, God God was showing and demonstrating to Israel, I am with you. Return to me. And they ignored it. And God brought the consequence through Assyria and through Babylon. But as Matthew announced in Matthew chapter 2, right, this, this had this kind of historical fulfillment in Isaiah and with the nation of Israel. But now Matthew is, is drawing this into his time and he's saying, listen, here it is. This is what happened this is the, the, the full story of the Messiah, a true virgin giving birth to a son, and in the fullest sense, God with us, God in the flesh, taking on humanity, right, a human nature, never leaving behind his divine nature, but, but taking on a human nature and coming and living among us, walking among us. Why? Because he wanted to show his love for us. Not to condemn, but to save. 
And so the testimony, according to the scriptures, of this virgin birth, I think, is absolutely miraculous and is meant to give hope and life. It's meant to give hope and life. God used Matthew to pull forward and, and set right in front of us an undeniable piece of evidence that Jesus was literally God with us. So those two truths, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, those two truths come out of John 3.16, and there's a third today that we need to finish with, and that is that there's a response to this truth followed by a result. The verse is this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The response portion is this, right? Whoever believes in him, meaning some won't believe in him. Whoever does believe in him will have life. So therefore, this is not an exclusive truth. It's not an exclusive opportunity. The word is whoever. Why is that? Well, God's righteousness and justice demands that kind of response. There's, there's something in response to his gracious gift that God requires. It's belief. Now, the word believe, we need to understand properly as it's, as it's taught to us through the scriptures. I love what Paul Tripp says in his book, Do You Believe? I came across this just a few days ago once again. It says, remember, belief is not just a matter of mental assent, but also a way of living. If you don't live what you believe, then you probably don't believe it in the biblical sense of what belief means. Right? Because belief in the scriptures is, is, is identified of, of not only what I believe, kind of in an intellectual manner, but it's what, what transforms then my heart and my soul. And just reminding us of, of the full nature of belief, the life transformation. Kent Hughes, a wonderful pastor, many years ago said this, I came to realize I didn't need to learn new and better things, but I needed to believe what I already believed. I need to believe what I already believed. Life. Belief lived out. And so the response that John 3.16 calls for is belief. Surrender is another way that we describe that. Understanding who Jesus is and realizing, man, I am not God. I am not on the throne of my life, and, and I want Jesus to be there because he is my Savior. So we have the response, and we have the results. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible's clear. Our sin deserves death, but a loving and gracious God has provided a way of life, true life, true life here and now, in, in how we live upon this earth, how we see things, how we view things upon true life. Jesus in John 10, 10 says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. That's not just future one day kind of fulfillment. That's like now that, that a relationship with Jesus, believing in him, brings a whole new sense of purpose and of meaning and, to, and of joy in life in the midst of every circumstance because of the salvation offered in him. 
We have true life here and now. We have, of course, then the eternal life that is mentioned here. You shall not perish, but have eternal life. Even in death, there is life for those who believe in Jesus. Because it's eternal life. It's a life that goes beyond what is of the temporary nature of this world in which we live currently, right? This flesh and blood, of which you all know, will die one day. There's eternal life. Life with him forever. And I can't think of anything more loving than this story. God, our Heavenly Father, choosing to send His Son, right? a parent, laying down the life of their child to give life to others, to give life to you. So the question is, what's our response? Are we among those who believe? Are you one of the whosoever's? That believe. As you think about the Christmas story, I pray it's not just, you know, the familiar that, that you hear and, and the manger scene and all those kind of things, but I pray that as we contemplate these prophecies, as we, as we talk about uh, what they teach us about God and who he is, I pray that there's a, there's a depth of this story for you this year that maybe is an is a, is a understanding and realization of why Jesus came and that for you this is the time in your life when that, that transformation happens, that justification mentioned earlier happens through Jesus, right? You are saved, born again, Jesus said. If you read all of John chapter 3, what he's talking about with this man named Nicodemus is you must be born again, brought from death to life. How does that happen? Through Jesus Christ, believing in him, trusting in him as your savior, coming to God and saying, I know I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I need life. And Jesus is the one. So as we finish today, I'm, I'm going to pray, and in the midst of that prayer, I'm going to give you opportunity to just have that conversation with God. Listen, to come to God in prayer, confessing your sin, believing, confessing your belief in Jesus as your Savior, and surrendering your life to Him, it doesn't take a special formula. You don't have to say just the right words. You just got to express your heart to God. He knows your heart. Humble yourself before Him. And friend, if you do that today, today can be the day when you're brought from death to life, from condemnation to no condemnation in Jesus. But Father, as we think about these things, Lord, we're grateful for the story that we recount at Christmas. We're grateful for the fact that you sent your son he took on flesh, became not only human, but became a baby in a manger to fully identify with us. We're so grateful that you gave that gift. Even more so, Father, we're grateful today to see and, and get a small glimpse over these last few minutes of the clarity and intentionality you, you had in the midst of all of the story from hundreds of years before Jesus, even thousands of years before Jesus even came, that you were like so clear with us of like, here's, here's how you will know. That was so gracious and so kind and so loving to do that. And I pray today, Father, that we are convinced 
we believe, both in our minds and with our hearts, that this truth and this reality that you sent Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to save us. I pray, Lord, we embrace that truth today. So, friend, if you're here and you just, I'm just going to give you a moment to talk with God. And if you need to confess your belief today as you never have before, I want to give you a moment to do that. Just have a conversation with God. Father, thank you for your kindness and your patience toward us. It's your word that tells us that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that draws us in. And I pray today as we've thought about these things, Lord, that for each of us, those who came already as a follower of Christ, but for those who here today maybe made that confession for the first time in their life, I pray, Lord, that we are drawn into walking with you faithfully every day. Lord, we're drawn into understanding your kindness and your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. So much so that we live life loving you in return. Because we're so full of gratitude. That you would send your son to save us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.